Chapter One of All the World by Charles Monroe Sheldon. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Adele de Pignoroles. Chapter One. Amos Thatcher, the old photographer of Bradford, was honestly perplexed on that memorable day when the town decked itself out with all the flags and buntings and welcome banners it could buy, borrow, or secure, when the boys came home and the whole town turned out to greet them. There are certain events in the history of towns, as in that of individuals, which are epochal and deserve to be so treated. Such an event had come to Bradford. When the ambulance company 241 had been entrained for its camp, there had been no banners, no bunting, no brass band, no decorated streets and office buildings. The boys had gone away in a rather quiet fashion. Fathers and mothers, sisters and sweethearts, had come down to the train, and there had been abundant leave-taking after a fashion, but nothing exuberant or demonstrative. When the train finally pulled out, there was a cheer, and some waving handkerchiefs and hats, and hands reached up to the windows out of which the boys were leaning, and bundles and baskets of fruit and candy and lunches were caught at by smiling-faced lads, and the crowd had lingered round the station until the train was out of sight. And then it had scattered, very quietly and soberly, and eyes that had bravely and steadily looked into other eyes undimmed, now filled, and the step faltered in anticipatory thought of the unknown future for ambulance company number 241. But the homecoming, ah, that was a different story. Bradford put on all its holiday and convention clothes. It spread its colors lavishly to the breeze. There was not a store, an office, a house, or even a barn without its token of welcome. Main Street was a fluttering rainbow. The little depot, which had not been painted for a good many months, was almost covered up with the colors of the sky, the sunrise, and the starlight. And the tragedy of it all to Amos Thatcher was the plain fact that he could not be everywhere at once to get all the views he wanted. There was the main street and the post office and the courthouse and Dr. Grant's home. Gramp was the company captain, and he was coming back with decorations pinned on him by Clemenceau himself. And there was the depot and the incoming train and the churches and the G.A.R. and the mayor and city officials and the fire department and the procession which had formed and was even now extended all the way from the depot to the post office. To be sure, there were two other photographers in Bradford, but they were women, and Amos secretly sniffed at them and their outfit as altogether impossible and inadequate for the great occasion. He had flitted nervously all over town that morning, getting snapshots of nearly everything, but had finally come down to the depot to catch the boys at the exciting moment of their arrival. He planted his camera up against the end of the depot, put his black box with its plates down by it, and turning around as he rose, he knocked the hat off a man in the crowd. "'Why don't you?' Amos started to complain irritably, and then, almost with comical rapidity, his own hat came off, and he dived down after the other man's. "'Dr. Ward, I beg your pardon. All my fault. Here.' He picked up the hat and handed it to the man, who took it with a smile that seemed to irradiate the atmosphere in a circle like a personal halo. "'It's all right. All right, Thatcher. I got in your way.' Amos Thatcher looked at Dr. Ward wistfully. "'That's fiction, doctor, but we understand you.' "'Tell you what, while we're waiting, give me a group. "'You and Mrs. Ward and Esther. Where's Mary?' "'Down at the end of the end of the platform,' said the doctor. "'But I—' "'Don't refuse me, doctor. Think of it. "'Here I have loaded down with hydroquinone and sulfite of soda "'and carbonate and bromide of potassium "'and pyro at six dollars a pound "'and hypo and alum and acetic acid at a dollar and a quarter a gallon "'and metal at a hundred dollars a pound. "'Just think of that, doctor, and it used to be five dollars. "'And just think of all the pictures going to waste here today.' and Amos groaned as his eye took in the wealth of impossible chances on this day of Bradford's great celebration. "'You don't mind just this once, do you, doctor?' Amos pleaded. 
you have never given me a good chance at you and here is richard coming home with the croix de guerre and all that and i want mary in it too dr ward smiled again and returned amos's pleading look with one that meant yielding affirmation mary is at the other end of the platform with the rest of the high school but oh well come sarah esther it's only one day out of a lifetime gave amos his chance out here cried amos eagerly pushing through the crowd to a sunny spot outside the circle around the depot and the crowd turned with real interest and amusement at the sight of dr ward his wife and their oldest daughter forming a picture for thatcher for in all the history of bradford so far no one had ever known dr ward to have his picture taken far less to stand for a group with his wife and daughter so the crowd was at a high tension of excitement as it viewed the unusual sight with almost as much interest as amos himself who when he had succeeded in posing the doctor and mrs ward and esther as they wanted them turned about to find every person at that end of the little depot standing in a half circle as if there were a real audience to a real show amos grinned at the sight but turned his back on the crowd to give the doctor a direction i can't get a good picture with your hat on doctor you will take it off won't you just a little farther in miss esther there that's better miss ward if you please a trifle back just a trifle thank you amos held up his hand adjusted the cloth put his head under it and at that precise moment the engine whistle blew they're coming they're coming the whole crowd surged down to the track dr ward dragged by esther and mrs ward followed and amos emerged from the black cloth to find his picture slipping into the shouting hurrahing mass of bradford's best citizens in that moment of real life amos threw up his hands then he grabbed all the implements of his profession he could hold and followed the crowd to get whatever he could as he groaned over the marvellous pictures and groups going to waste on every side and truly no picture or series of pictures could do justice to the homecoming of the ambulance company two forty one the people ran out in front of the engine and surrounded the trains on all sides old jim wilson the engineer pulled up and stopped before he was within a hundred feet of the depot platform and climbed down out of his cap and joined the welcoming mob there were so many scenes that an army of photographers to say nothing of one amos thatcher could not have got them men and women were crying and laughing and shouting and calling out the names of sons and brothers and husbands and lovers crowding up on the steps of the coaches trying to swarm into them while the boys inside yelled to get out and jim wilson stood helplessly by the side of his engine wiping the tears off his cheeks with an oily rag and swearing under his choking breath that he would be another day late getting into bayview next station to bradford but when the boys finally succeeded in getting out of the coaches and into the arms of their respective fathers mothers wives sisters and lovers the company formed for its place in the procession for bradford was not going to be cheated of that procession which it had projected in its imagination almost from the very day when ambulance company two forty one had left for its training camp the company would much rather have gone straight home without any fuss but it good-naturedly understood the situation and with more or less simulated protest consent to be lionized they formed up in the place assigned by the marshal of the day right behind the band composed of high school students boys and girls proud of the honor and waltzing with excitement the lines of citizens up the street through which the procession was to pass had fallen into the middle of the road in their eagerness to see the company and were wondering at the delay as all people at all processions always wonder but the delay was inexcusable for it was caused by the one company ambulance which number two forty one had been permitted to bring home as a trophy this ambulance had a history and all bradford had more or less knowledge of it but the thing itself was what bradford wanted to see almost as much as the boys themselves bradford was proud of its two cannon in the courthouse square at the base of the soldiers monument cannon of an obsolete pattern captioned by the boys of sixty one 
but the younger generation knew nothing of their history, and only an occasional veteran would stop as he slowly crossed the square and lay his trembling hand on the cold lip of the cannon's mouth and linger a moment, memory travelling back over the fifty years. But the ambulance of Company 241 represented a new type of war, with new and strange weapons and appliances that even high school boys and girls understood, and when, after considerable delay, the shell-shattered car was brought out and cranked up, all Bradford, within seeing distance of it, set up a cheer that was heard beyond the post-office and broke up the line of waiting delegations in the procession. The people who had been waiting impatiently there, mostly the older women and men who were not related to the company, broke from their places and surged down the street to the depot, and the marshal of the day, old Judge Grayson, in vain tried to reform the waiting lines. His horse, which was almost as old as himself, backed over the curb onto the sidewalk and threatened to march hind first through Deacon Chandler's grocery store. The judge had not been on a horse for a good many years, and he soon found he had all he could do to reform himself, to say nothing of the impatient lines of citizens who swarmed down to see the ambulance and followed its course up the main street in a tumultuous, hurrahing, and altogether undignified manner, old men and women walking and dancing in front of the car like boys and girls at a circus parade. There was enough of the famous ambulance to go on its own power, and Richard Ward, Dr. Ward's younger son, was at the steering wheel, which was minus the upper half of its circle. The whole car was battered up enough to satisfy the pride of every Bradford citizen. "'It sure has been to the war, all right,' one after another said, eyes glancing now at the boys, now at the dumb but not silent witness of the company's share in the greatest war of the world. The sight of that ambulance, after a while, acted on the crowd in a curious way. As the procession slowly climbed the grade of Main Street, the shouting and excitement and noise grew less and less. The car wheezed and rumbled. A great ragged rent right through the main body of the old covered sides revealed where a piece of shell had torn. It was a rent which the boys had tried to mend by tacking over it a piece of folded canvas cut out in the shape of the red cross. The top of the radiator had been shot away, and only one wheel had all its spokes left. The frame had been bent and twisted out of plumb, and the whole thing wobbled over the street in a drunken fashion that required a skill born of acquaintance with its antics to steer, so as to prevent it skidding into the populace on one hand and backing down the street on the other. But as it rumbled along on that day memorable in Bradford annals, it seemed to be a thing of majestic and heroic build, its faded, rusted, misshapen form telling of the grim struggle over there. The mud of France was still clinging to its tires, and what was once the life-blood of human beings stained the seats and the floor and even the sides of the wall within. No wonder that Bradford, by the time the company had come as far as the courthouse square, was quieter, almost as if it had begun to catch the real meaning of the story which the old ambulance had not only seen but made. For this is the story of the ambulance of Company 241, as told by Archie Nelson that night, to a crowd in the National Hotel lobby, after the reception was over and most of the boys had gone home to their own folks. Nelson was a lone sheep, and had no relatives in Bradford, and was staying at the hotel that night. At the request of the crowd, most of whom had heard the story before, but not at first hand, Archie gave the details, the crown standing and sitting around in a rapt silence that embarrassed Archie, as he said he was not used to saying anything unless he had to yell louder than a six-inch bomb. "'You see, we were at Bella Wood, over the ridge west of the Borcheres, Dick and Bert Chandler and two or three others.' "'You were there, weren't you?' a voice interrupted, the only interruption Archie noticed. "'Well, of course, I'm telling the thing as an eyewitness would tell it,' Archie acknowledged as he continued. "'And it was pouring rain to beat Flanders, and that is pouring some. My hair is wet yet from Flanders. 
Well, we had driven the old car down the ridge, where we picked up three fellows, and were giving them first aid, when a bunch of botches jumped out of a clump of trees and began throwing hand grenades. We picked up the men we'd been working over, loaded them into the car, and Dick started her up the ridge, chug, 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 through the mud and over the holes, while Bert and I leaned up against the back end of the establishment so the fellows inside wouldn't slide out, and to give the old engine a heart, for she was beginning to have palpitation and compound fractures. While we were within twenty feet of the top of the ridge, when a machine gun on the woods let loose on our right, and the first volley took the half of Dick's steering wheel right off, and also the best part of his right hand. He went on steering with his left and all that was left of the wheel, when a grenade took the top of the hood off and clipped several spokes out of the front tire. And at that moment the old engine went dead on us, just as a company of negroes broke over the edge of the ridge, flinging grenades at the botches and singing, "'It's a long, long way to any breakfast!' They quit singing long enough to yell a cheer for the Red Cross, and then swarmed down the ridge into the clump where the machine gun was fitting. Bert and I leaned as hard as we could against the old car, but we couldn't budge her. Then what happened but one of the fellows we had picked up and shoved into the machine seemed to come to life. At any rate, he backed off the floor where he'd been lying, and as his feet hit the mud, he said, "'Excuse me, fellows, for butting in, as I don't belong to this company and was never introduced, but if there's nothing the matter with my legs if my eyes is gone, and it strikes me your old buggy lacks pep.' He leaned up against the old thing alongside Bert and me, his face streaming with blood and rain, and if you'll believe me, the old thing began to move. Not very far, for nothing less than a steam jack could have shoved her uphill through that mud. But just as she began to sag down again, what does that engine do but begin to thump again, chug, 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 with Dick sitting there minus one hand, working the mixture with the other, and steering with his teeth or something. The fellow who had slid out to push fell down when the engine started with a jolt, and Bert stepped on him accidentally, pushing him deeper into the mud. We had leaned over to pick him up and put him back into the gin rickshaw, and had just got his head up to the one end of the cot, for one of the other fellows had slid off that onto the floor. When bang comes a shell and slams right through the barouche, carrying away the cot and killing one of the boys inside. But the engine kept it going and just wheezed over the ridge as a covey of shrapnel pattered around us and got Bert in the shoulder and me in the leg. As we began to slide downhill, we could hear the negroes yelling and singing, It's a long, long way to any breakfast, as they charged over the machine gun and captured the whole bunch of Bosch grenade slingers. After we got out of the hospital, Dick got the Croix de Guerre, and who should get the same at the close of the next day but Private Henry Munson of the 369th Infantry, formerly of the old New York 15th, a negro regiment. Munson was the first negro to get the Croix de Guerre, but a lot of them got it later. His company stood grinning in the pouring rain. It was still raining, while Manson received his honor, and when they broke ranks, they were singing, It's a long, long way to any breakfast, but we's gwine to get some now. And you can be sure they did get some, the first bite, though, they had had for fourteen hours. Oh, yes, and I forgot to say that the fellow who lost his eyes but not his legs, and who helped push the buggy up that ridge, was a Marine by the name of Sam Rogers. He had gone over the slope with a handful of Marines just a few minutes before the 369th Infantry. Bert and I helped get him into the first base hospital and as we laid him down, he came to and began to sing a line of the Marine Band Chorus. If the Army and the Navy ever gaze on heaven's scenes, they will find the gates are guarded by United States Marines. We heard of Rogers before we left France. He's totally blind, but he's an expert stenographer and typewriter, with as good a position in Kansas City, and he's one of the most jolly fellows you ever saw. He says he owes his life to Ambulance Company 241, and I guess he does, but maybe we owe ours the extra push he gave us over the ridge at Chateau Thierry. The next few days at Bradford were days of excitement and much visiting and talking. The boys declared they were more exhausted at the close of each day than they had ever been on the hardest field of battle. But the homecoming was so great an event that they reveled in the lionizing, and Bradford gave several days to it. 
the ambulance with due ceremonies was installed as a permanent trophy on one end of the platform of the city hall with a neatly worded account of its adventures under a glass cover hung on one side and the list of its heroes on the other it was difficult for bradford in making out this list to make any special note of individual heroes and no attempt to do so seemed practical as time went on however after the excitement of the first days from the welcome had subsided a little a few persons emerged from the group and grew more distinct and outstanding than the rest among these was richard ward dr ward's son the driver had lost his right hand at the ridge of chateau thierry dick as nelson called him and as he was known to every man in ambulance company two forty one was an average american boy one of thousands whom the great war had developed into a grown-up if not serious-minded man the first day that dr ward had an opportunity to study his son's face he was reminded of one of john oxenham's poems in which a father is pictured as asking his son what he is seeing out there dr ward silently sat facing dick but inwardly he was going over oxenham's verses face to face with reality what did you see out there my lad that has set that look in your eyes you went out a boy you have come back a man with strange new depths underneath your tan what was it you saw out there my lad that has set such deeps in your eyes strange things and sad and wonderful things that i can scarce tell i have been in the sweep of the wreather's scythe with god and christ in hell i have seen christ doing christly deeds i have seen the devil at play i have gripped the sod in the hand of god i have seen the godless prey i have seen the devil in petticoats whiling the souls of men i have seen great sinners do great deeds and turn to their sins again i have sped through the hells of fiery hail with fell red fury shod i have heard the whisper of a voice i have looked in the face of god you've a right to your deep high look my lad you've met god in the ways and no man looks into his face but he feels it all his days you've a right to your deep high look my lad and we thank him for his grace they were sitting in dr ward's little study off the library room and talking about dick's plans for the future i haven't any dad dick had answered in response to his father's direct question what plan have you you see dad none of us has had much time to plan for careers we have had so many careers in the old ambulance that we don't seem to care for anything common how about the university you haven't given up the thought of college i don't know dick's reply was slow and hesitating i was halfway through you know i don't feel much like starting in again the old class is scattered some of it is in alaska and pieces of it in jerusalem and you know dad i'm not like albert he always said he was going to graduate with the degree when the war was over even if it lasted a hundred years but albert was a scholar you know i never was yes your brother took to books dr ward said calmly his gaze travelled from his living son to a picture on the top of his writing desk the picture of a young man in officer's uniform with the aviation wings of silver across the breast and by the side of the picture a framed letter dick following his father's look seemed surprised as if seeing something for the first time he started up and put out his hand his left hand to take the framed letter and paused to throw a questioning request at his father who was gazing at him thoughtfully yes read it your mother put it up there this morning you haven't seen it yet every word in it is just like albert dick with a reverence he would never have exhibited to any stranger took the letter and read it standing it had been found on the body of his brother after he had met his death in an air duel and sent to dr ward by albert's company officers father of all helper of the free we pray with anxious hearts for all who fight on sea and land and in the air to guard our homes and liberty make clear the vision of our leaders and their counsels wise into thy care our ships and seamen we commend guard them from chance sown mines and all the dangers of this war at sea and give them the victory 
to men on watch give vigilance to those below calm sleep make strong our soldiers hearts and brace their nerves against the bursting shrapnel and the unseen fire that lays the next man low in pity blind them from the sight of fallen comrades left upon the field o god of love and pity have compassion on the wounded make bearable their pain or send unconsciousness to surgeons and dressers give strength that knows no failing and skill that suffers not from desperate haste to tired men give time to rest pity the poor beasts of service who suffer for man's wrong o thou who makest human hearts the channel of thy answer to our prayers let loose a flood of sympathy and help for children and their mothers who wander desolate and suffering leaving wrecked homes and fields and gardens trodden under ruthless feet with thee who sufferest more than all may we with reverence thy burden share for all are thine and in thine image made they too are thine who caused the wrong o father may this war be mankind's last appeal to force grant from the stricken earth sown with thy dead an everlasting flower of peace shall spring and all thy world become a garden where the flower of christ shall grow and this we beg for our dear elder brother's sake who gave himself for those he loved jesus christ our lord amen dick put the letter gently back by the side of the picture and went and sat down and put his left arm up to his face when he took it down and looked at his father dr ward was sitting there with his rare smile seeing the invisible albert would have gone into the ministry if he had come home he talked it all over with me before he went away and he would have made a rare minister he certainly would father said dick every man in his corps loved him you haven't thought of the ministry have you richard his father suddenly asked or of foreign missions well hardly dick answered with a hearty laugh you know i was never cut out for the church and besides there's requa you don't think her father would ever let anyone take her away from home a strange look went over dr ward's face then perhaps you will settle down here at home with mother and me you don't know how we have missed you and esther is getting married soon if we could see you settled the doctor's voice trembled with unusual feeling as he sat there opposite his only son the benjamin of his love though dick could not know all that his self-contained father felt i don't know just what i can do best dad we have both forgot this he held out the stump of his mutilated arm and both father and son eyed it calmly i'm interested in the chuck contrivance the port Villiers school made for me dad the working prothesis they called it i showed it to you but i don't take to it somehow some don't you know i feel as if i could do better to train my left hand to do the work of a right where is it in your room bring it down and let me see it work we haven't had time to look it over dick went up to his room and came back in a few minutes with the chuck adjusted to his arm it was a somewhat intricate device of steel rods and rod high cords not bearing the slightest resemblance to a hand or fingers but more like some uncanny metal claw or series of claws which might have been invented by some inhabitant of mars the sight of it suggested at once a factory or a laboratory or as dick said grimly a bushel of dentist tools i don't deny it's a mighty clever invention dad said dick roaming over the study and flourishing the chuck up and down in a series of curves and twists like some predatory old historic bird with a metallic beak just ask me to do something with it and i'll show you how the prosthesis works dr ward looked over his desk and finally picked up an old inkstand here try your hand on this i haven't been able to unscrew the top of this stand for years see if you can do anything with it dick put the inkstand down on the desk adjusted a clamp of the chuck with his left hand then without using the left arm or hand he swung the chuck around as if it were a crane attached to an engine using the muscles of his upper right arm and shoulder and began working on the cap of the inkstand to unscrew it 
a moment of steady tension, and the cap began to turn slowly. The metal claw kept adjusting itself to the turns, and at the last revolution of the thread gasped the cap firmly, and the chuck swung over, holding out the unscrewed cap to Dr. Ward. "'There you are, sir,' said Dick, grinning. "'Show me something harder.' "'It's perfectly uncanny,' said the father, taking the cap out of the claw, which opened when his fingers had seized it. "'You're sure it won't bite?' "'I'm not sure what it will always do, and I get fascinated with it at times. But think of a thing like that holding out a rose to a girl, to Requidad, or taking off a hat to bow to a lady like this.' Dick picked up his father's hat off its accustomed place by the door, used the chuck to place it on his head, and then removed it with a series of grotesque gyrations that caused Dr. Ward to shout with laughter. But the next moment he was grave. "'The absence of the hand may determine your future work, lad. This contrivance is more for the factory or laboratory than the store or profession.' "'Yes. That's why I say I don't take to it very kindly. I can teach my left hand to run a typewriter and work the key shift with my foot. There is a contrivance all made for that. We saw a lot of fellows using it at Charleroi. But I don't know, Dad. I'm all at sea about my future. I'll have to do something and do it pretty quick, for Rico and I want to have a home as soon as possible.' Talking frankly about that part of his future, at least, that was very much determined on, Dick undid the complicated apparatus of the working processes, and after a little more visit with his father, went up to his room to think over future plans. After Dick had gone upstairs, Dr. Ward shut the door of his study, and then he turned to his desk, picking up the cap of the old inkstand and turning it over and over between his strong brown hands. Then, after a few minutes, he reached up for and took down off the top of his writing desk, not the picture of Albert, his oldest son, who had not come home, but a smaller one, a postcard size of Richard, taken while he was in the training camp. This he placed on the desk in front of him and looked at it with lips that moved as if in a prayer of gratitude. And it was a gratitude that welled out of a heart that hungered for the younger son now home, after marvellous deliverance from tremendous dangers. "'I thank thee, my God,' the doctor's lips moved, "'for the loud thou hast spared to me. He will be a comfort to me here. He and Requa, I thank thee, God.' He put the picture back in his place, opened the study door, and when Dick came down later and looked in, his father sat there with his accustomed serene look, working over his Sunday sermon. Dick smiled as he passed on and out of the house to call on Requa. End of chapter 1 Recording by Adelde Pinoroles